You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, and we don't ever want to waste it. That's why we do what we do, turn down the noise of the news cycle. And this got really noisy on social media. Let's go to the Atlantic. Uh, Emily Oster wrote this. It's titled, Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. We need to forgive one another for what we did and said when we were in the dark of COVID. That's a long piece. We link to it. Go read it for yourself. Make up your own mind. But let's take the question up because, as you can imagine, this exploded all over social media and people had reactions. And I'm a writer. I do this for a living. So, yes, I understand most people that are reacting to it didn't read it. I get all that. But the question's a fair one. Should we just amnesty everything that happened during COVID? Now, the author goes to great pains to differentiate between a couple things. Talks about things that went right and wrong. Talks about the problems with the school system and test scores now. Talks about some of the health stuff that we did, didn't know, and didn't. She makes a very important distinction between people that were malicious and people that were just wrong but were trying. I think all those things are fine, but let me take the question on its merits for just a moment and kind of keep it to a level uh, that we can do in this short time frame. Should we have blanket amnesty for people during the COVID pandemic? The short answer, it depends. What were they doing? See, here's your problem is amnesty means that nobody's going to be accountable. 
Now, accountability and retribution are two very different things. There's a lot of people that want retribution for what happened. That's a different argument. I don't think we should be seeking retribution because you can't undo what is done, but I think you should have accountability to understand why it happened and try to prevent it from happening again. Let's be real crystal clear. Most of the problems that occurred during COVID, whether it was problems with the school, problems with the government, problems with the healthcare system, or problems with us and how we dealt with crisis, didn't start the moment COVID happened. They were things that were already in place, things that were already set in motion, habits and designs, and the way we already did things that left us vulnerable. In other words, a lack of accountability before the pandemic has a lot to do with the things that went wrong during the pandemic. And if you're not going to have any accountability after the pandemic, guess what's going to happen during the next crisis or the next pandemic or the next economic crisis or whatever comes next? See, crisis is always going to come again. And the best thing you can do for the next crisis is learn from the last crisis, prepare yourself, and then you're a little bit more ready for it than you were. So here's the problem with blanket amnesty. No, you can't do that because not everything was equal. Like the author breaks down, and you should read the whole piece. Don't just knee-jerk to the title. The people that were malicious need to be accountable. The people that were incompetent need to be accountable. Maybe more important than all those, the people who used this crisis to further what they were already doing and believing and wanting and striving for and never made any adjustments whatsoever other than slamming the crisis into the hole they needed it to be so they could further their agenda, they definitely need an accountability. They need to be held to account for what they did because when they saw a crisis, all they thought about was themselves and their cause and how they could manipulate everybody else. And there was a lot of people on all sides doing that. And not all of them were just for bad sides. Some of them came hawking good reasons and saying, well, we need to do this for the general health and we need to do this for the children and we need to do this for this, that, and the other. But if it was not adjusted to the crisis at hand and it was just for them to get what they've always wanted anyway, they need to be held accountable for that. The folks that made honest mistakes, yes, of course, they should get some amnesty. They should get some forgiveness. The people that made mistakes and admit it, they definitely need it. And they need it publicly to say, yes, you made an error, but you admitted it. Those folks we need to give some grace to. The folks that just didn't know any better, they should get some grace. But the people that knew better, the people that were malicious, the people that used this to try to increase their power and influence and manipulation over other people, and there were a lot of them. They're in our schools, they're in our governments, they're in our businesses, and they're in our families. Oh yes, our families. I don't have Facebook for a reason, and the pandemic sure did emphasize why I don't, because I saw what people did to people they say they love, they say are family, they say are friends. Look at how folks treated each other on social media. Some of y'all need to ask, not for amnesty, but for forgiveness. And you need to be accountable to those people that you hurt. Maybe start there before you start demanding amnesty and forgiveness of the government or of medical officials or of the school system. But they all owe us some accountability, too. The test scores are glaring that our school system failed our children. The medical system and the healthcare system and the public health system in this country failed us on multiple levels. Number one, in not knowing how to communicate with the public effectively. And yes, some of that was the public pushing back, but a lot of it was people that have had bureaucratic jobs or medical office jobs didn't know how to talk to normal people in a normal way to get their point across. That's on them. They need to get better at that. And of course, our government, who seem to want 
to use it more for power and to control things and to try to get credit and to alleviate blame. And those things all go together a lot of the times. They need to be held accountable. We all lived through COVID. We all had different experiences and everybody suffered in different ways and overcame in different ways. Something like blanket forgiveness, blanket amnesty, that's not going to work. Some folks do deserve amnesty. Some folks definitely deserve forgiveness. But we must have accountability or we're going to do this all over again. And then somebody else is going to have to write a piece begging for amnesty. And maybe that time someone will listen and go, no, we need accountability. Not to just forgive and forget. We can forgive. Better never forget. Because as the author pointed out in her piece, you're doomed to repeat this stuff. Yes, if it's all negative, you may get in a doom loop. But if you have no accountability at all, you're going to be in a failure loop anyway. More Hertel right after this. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, this is fun. We love having her on here. She has become our go-to when it comes to healthcare policy because that's what she does. She works in that field. She explains it so well that even I can understand it. Elise Amidro, back on the program, Young Voices contributor. How are you, my friend? Great to see you again. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. You got in the Wall Street Journal. Way to go. I'm still waiting on my call from them. Open DMs. I'm available. <laughs> um. There's really two parts to this story that you're covering. One's going to get the headlines and the trending topic, and the other one is actually a more universal problem, but they both converge here. Um, The Senate has a bill. This is a bipartisan bill. Rand Paul and Cory Booker, usually not two guys you would normally associate with each other. They're pretty much as different as different can be on a lot of levels. They came up with this FDA Modernization Act. Now, as we all know, names of bills means absolutely nothing. This was actually kind of pretty close, though. It is a modernization of the FDA, and this is pointing to something from the 30s that does need modernized. Before we get into it, in a perfect world, if we take it at face value, what is this bill supposed to do? This this bill is simply there to end the mandate that pharmaceutical drugs be tested on animals before human trials. So if it all goes well, it will simply say pharmaceutical companies are welcome to use animal testing or another way of you know demonstrating that a drug is safe before they start administrating it to people um to to proceed with the trials now this is a mandated law it goes back to 1938 they're just removing the mandate if they don't tinker with this too much trying to get it passed correct yeah it, this is not a ban on animal testing i'm sure lots of people would like there to be a ban uh animal lovers don't like the fact that we can't test on animals but this is, again, bipartisan bills are not that exciting because it just means everyone kind of agrees. Here's just saying 
hey, this is an outdated mandate. Like you said, 1938, um, the Congress ordered that um, animal testing be part of those trials and or like, precede human trials. And now that we've developed much better technology to test drugs, we no longer need to rely on human testing, uh, on, on excuse me, on animal testing to uh, be able to uh, test the safety of a drug before we administer it to people. So we're just saying, you, you do it, you don't do it, it doesn't matter to us as long as the drug's safe. Yeah, we'll touch on the animal testing part because that's the one that probably most, you know, that's the one that's going to trend on Facebook. It's like, oh, let's talk animal testing because people react to that strongly. Big picture wise, and you do a good job of laying this out in the piece. Can we just stop? Because we, we skip over numbers and don't. 1938, it's 2022, and we're just now looking at this law. How many laws are on the books like this from the 1930? We dealt uh, with another guest yesterday. We were talking about a law back from the 1880s that was put into effect to try to, we covered it with, out in Colorado where they were trying to shut down a Rocky Horror Picture Show with a law from the 1880s about, you know, public nudity. This is way more widespread than people realize is like, we have all these zombie laws on the books that just go and go and go because nobody ever updates them. That's actually a more universal problem and something that that is in the purview of Congress and state legislatures to do. They don't do it very often. Right. And I will put that out, like, out there first. I have nothing against old laws. I think laws, you know, laws should actually last a long time because it's hard to put, to pass a law. It's hard to uh, implement it. And uh, it affects lots of people, right? So we want good laws to be passed and then to be there so that we can rely on them. The problem is when a law is so specific that it mandates the use specifically of a technology that's going to be out of, you know, out of fashion, uh, outdated very quickly, then we waste our time and actually we can have bad consequences come from those laws. In this case, the mandate to do um, animal testing first, as we ju were just talking about, huge impact on animals. But then also, as it turns out, animal testing is less and less a good you know, way of testing the drug's safety. And as it turns out, many drugs that do well in animals are actually toxic for humans. So what made sense at the time was a technology that was all we had right in the 30s all we had was animal testing we barely had human like blood testing right so the the science then was so you know primitive compared to what we have today um but by enshrining the very specific technology that drug companies have to use into law we end up with an outdated outdated law like that we can repeal finally hopefully um, you know, decades later. So that's the issue is when we try to be so specific about the technology and the, the particulars of a process that we run into those issues of outdated harmful laws. Elise Omidro joining us. Just to put it in perspective, though, you just brought this up. Medical science changes really, really fast. You know, 1938, you know, we're not using penicillin yet widespread. We know what it is, but it hasn't been fully approved until the mid 40s. This is an area where it really shows out that laws are not updated, though, because something like medical. I mean, shoot, just go back to COVID two years ago, how much medical science has changed and our perception of it has changed. These are things that just doesn't get talked about. But when you go into something specific, it usually is some kind of a mass thing like an animal testing, something that gets the collective conscious going. And then all of a sudden we pay attention to these kinds of laws. That always seems to be how it works. And I guess that's just part of human nature. But it is a way that we need to kind of review our laws of like, maybe it shouldn't take something that's a hot button issue to get something that's really important, like updating FDA guidance, which we all saw what happens when FDA guidance isn't clear and these sorts of things. 
exactly like this law here the the proposal the proposed law the fda modernization act 2.0 what it would do is it says you can use computer models or you can use organs on chips and i can talk more about those or you can use another way that works right it's not specific it's not exhaustive i think that's a great way of legislating because you're keeping it open for um for uh, innovators to do what they do best which is develop the next best technology if you can do that you obviously need laws we don't want you know we don't want a, um, a total lack of laws especially when it comes to things as important as drug testing but you can actually phrase it in a way that's that's broad enough that anyone can you know try something new and that's the goal here with this this bill yeah let's just deal with the animal testing part for a minute look i'm i have five dogs a cat and multiple children i'm an animal lover by any definition Marty. i love animals i got a rescue that we're medically healing right now getting ready to have surgery i had a dog at the vet this morning okay i like animals the animals animal testing is always going to be icky even for people who think it's a scientific necessity we understand that has been abused over the years but on the on the whole we understand Yes, you need a living being to test some of this stuff out on before you go to a human in most cases. But like you said, some of that's changing. We can artificially create organs now. We can artificially test things. We can use computer modeling. Some of this has changed, but some of this is still, you're going to have to put this in a living organism and see what happens. How do you deal with that part of it? I know it's a big issue. I know we have all kinds of organizations about animal testing. How do you deal with something that at some part is still going to be a scientific necessity for the near future? I think there's part of it. You just have to accept that that's how it is, right? We still, as a society, value human life probably above, uh, uh, definitely above uh, animal life. So um, to the extent that those tests do help people, they will be around. Now, I think this the, this type of, of um, law change is, is that exactly what's going to get us out of the reliance on, on human um, on, excuse me, this is exactly what's going to get us out of um, animal testing, because you're allowing those smaller innovators. It's maybe biotechs, right? I think biotechs are among those that are most excited about the potential of this law passing. <laughs> it's biotechs that are most interested in in getting this law changed because they have other ways of testing drugs than animals. So, organs on chips are a new technology. They're completely made, you know, in a lab. It's it's a, a um, synthetic device that imitates an organ. So, for instance, a, a lung. You can have a, a little piece of plastic of sorts that breathes and like that functions like a lung. And you can test different compounds on an illness inside that and see how a real lung would react. This has become so um, powerful that you can really make great progress before you take that drug to a human trial. Same thing for computer models. They've become really good at, at testing different things. So this is how you get out of it. You can't eliminate it right away, I don't think, unless you really have the will of, you know, all of Congress or, you know, a majority and more to get that the, the idea of animal testing, you know, banned. But you can still quickly eliminate it by allowing innovators to be innovative. The amazing thing about um, moving away from animal testing is that it's much cheaper to do it that way, right? Like you can imagine that animal testing is very pricey to do. You have to have all the animals on hand. You have to take care of them. You have to have, um, you know, be compliant because there are obviously lots of rules around how you do the, the testing. Those things are very um, expensive and complex. So they keep out smaller entrants from the biotech space. And by removing those mandates, 
you can actually allow more entrants to come in, more competition, that becomes cheaper. And who doesn't want right, a, a cheaper drug? I think there's such a high demand for more affordable drugs right now. So when you make the process less expensive, you actually drive the market in that direction because the bigger players that are going to want to continue to do human testing, they, they actually won't want to um, uh, you know, do it anymore to the extent that they have cheaper ways of doing it. So I think this can really be eliminated through competition. Ali Zami Drogue joining us. There's another component to this, and you talked about the cost of it. The reason these drugs are so costly is because the R&D is astronomical, and some of that's regulation. We've talked to you about that before, and we'll debate it some other time. But on top of that, and on top of the moral argument, there's a thing about doing these drugs where it just takes forever to get it through the R&D and the process, and then the approval process with the FDA. Part of removing these mandates, this will also speed up getting these drugs through the process, not in an, in, you know, not in an, in a, uh, see, neither one of us can talk that, not in an irresponsible way, but just by removing a layer of testing or maybe allowing a technology that's a little bit faster and a little bit cheaper. This also speeds up a process that for far too many people that are waiting on the next wonder drug or the next miracle drug, maybe years or even a decade away, this speeds up the process, doesn't it? It does. It makes the process smoother, less expensive, just faster. That's one big advantage. The other advantage, and this is something that I don't think gets a lot of attention, but when you start human trials, people start taking the drug, right? You have the, the placebo group that thinks they're taking the drug. I mean, they don't, they are not actually. And then you have the people who are really trying the drug. And in any case, when um, the, the drug doesn't turn out to be uh, powerful and maybe when it turns out to be toxic, You've given hope to all these patients that a drug is making it to human trials. Like people are expecting something to happen and they can get very excited at the prospect of finally finding relief. And I think by uh, encouraging innovators to get in the space because it's now less expensive, you have more, you know, more um, uh, patients that are, that are going to be able to access drugs that potentially work. And I think that's really exciting too. Yeah, Ali Amidraw joining us. I think you're in part to this piece. Again, it's in the Wall Street Journal. We're going to link to it, read the entire piece. It's excellent. I think you bring up, going back to that wider point about regulation for just a second, I'm going to quote you here. You say, this mandate should serve as a cautionary tale, enshrining state-of-the-art technology and the laws risk undermining the development of a better method. We should take the long view legislating. I doubt anybody in 1938 thought it would be 2022 before anybody reviewed this law. We see this in other areas. We see this with the EU doing the USB-C mandates. We see it in the medical field. We saw it during COVID where we found out, hey, maybe some of that mandated stuff doesn't really need to be mandated if it's an emergency. You can pick anything you want. It's a general problem we have is we want to legislate for the now without the long view in mind. That really is a good lesson to take from this beyond the animal testing and beyond the length of you know these quote unquote, zombie laws that stay on the books for years. We just don't do a real good job of unintended consequences and what a law may look like 20, 30, 40 years from now, do we? 
we sadly don't and this is something this is really my wider point and maybe something that i care about people taking away from from this story is we can always do better when it comes to legislating for future generations we have to believe that people are going to come up with better ways of doing things than we currently have now and we also want to keep the economy the economy di dynamic uh, there's no reason for us to um, protect the current industries and that's usually where those laws are from right like there is an industry around specific mandates and they will lobby for those mandates to be included in law because they profit from there being a mandate that benefits them and so the more we move away from this highly specific technology specific language and toward a more open model of innovation and a more um, flexible you know way of competing we actually end up with better um, better laws and a more dynamic economy that allows everyone to come in and and uh, innovate and flourish. Yeah, and if there's one sector of society and technology that you do not want to stagnate, it is medical technology because you need it to continue to grow and push boundaries and find cures for it. Look how far we've come on so many medical fronts. And, you know, unfortunately during COVID, people got started pulling back a little bit and now we're seeing what happened with things coming back. You never want to stagnate with medical stuff. So it's very important our government doesn't do that as well. Uh, Elise Almidro, always love having you. You explain this stuff way better than I can. And I always learn something talking to you. This is a great piece. You're right. This is a bigger issue. I look forward to you writing and covering some more. So until we get you back on Hertel again, let folks know where they can keep up with you. Uh, this piece will be in the Wall Street Journal, but let them know what else you have going on as well. Absolutely. So currently I'm studying uh, single payer systems around the world. So this is going to be my next focus for a little bit. Uh, but in the meantime, you can catch my writings um, at uh, on LinkedIn simply. That's the only place I, I um, am active on social media. And my name is Elise, E-L-I-S-E. And last name is A-M-E-Z hyphen D-R-O-Z. Yep. And for those of you like me who have trouble with silent letters, it's on the lower third graphics on the YouTube. We'll also link to it uh, in the in the notes for all the podcasting folks. Uh, Lee's always enjoy our conversations. Look forward to having you back soon. Thank you for the time, ma'am. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we're going to talk some more environment, some more climate policy, some more policy in general, because these things always wind up back at policy. Tyler Devilius joining us on Hertel. He's from the state of Ohio, but we're not going to hold that against him for the purposes of this conversation. He is a Young Voices contributor, well-written, sharp guy. Looking forward to this. Tyler, thank you so much for the time today, sir. Andrew, thanks for having me. Happy to uh, be calling in today from the great state of Ohio. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, well, if it was if it was so great, you know, you wouldn't have to remind yourself how to spell it when you do, you know, football chants and such. <laughs> um, I'm teasing. Look, I I worked in Ohio in the tri-state Kentucky, West Virginia, Ohio area. I worked in Southport, so West Virginia, Ohio. It's just one of them things. I got lots of family in Youngstown, so it's all all in oh, good, right. clean fun. Let's start here, though, because we always do this with the policy stuff. Really, the policy is the secondary problem here because we never actually get to the policy because the rhetoric's a train wreck. So start with the rhetoric. And you started in your piece here in Real Energy 
let's start there because if you don't get through the rhetoric, you never get to the policy, you never get to a substantial argument, you never get to the point counter. Because look, some of this stuff is in dispute. We need to have a back and forth on this stuff, mm -hmm. but we never get there because of the rhetoric. Absolutely. You know, a, a recent poll uh, from Pew Research Center found that Americans are, are relatively evenly divided. It's 49-47 when asked if President Biden and Democrat, if, if their policies are moving us in the right direction when it comes to, to climate solutions. And you hit on something there that uh, what we hear from the left far too often are, are rhetoric, not solutions. What they want to do is to use this issue, particularly in a time like now, as we're a couple of weeks out from midterm elections, to really divide the country, for there to be a right side and a wrong side. And when we do that, we're doing a, a disservice to, to our country and, and to the environment, uh, because all we're doing is making this a campaign issue and not actually working towards the solution. So the piece that I wrote for Real Clear Energy, what I wanted to do was to highlight these conservative clean energy champions that are working at the state and local level, and particularly at the gubernatorial level, to highlight the actual solutions, uh, the actual progress that's being being made without having to cowtail to, to liberal policies. Um, you know, we talk about the fact that whether or not you believe humans are contributing to climate change, we recognize that the climate is changing, but just because the climate's changing doesn't mean our principles have to change. Yeah, and let's follow that up for a second because this is a matter of principles to some folks, but principles are also shaped by lived experience. And I think there's something happening here um, that's a little bit, we're seeing some crossing of political lines and ideology lines. And some of it depends on like, you know, part of the, if you live out in the country, you may be more inclined to be an outdoors person. You may be more naturally inclined to traditional conservation efforts. You may be a hunter or fisherman and you, stewardship is a big deal to you. Um, where this, where our radio partner originates out of Wilmington, that's a very progressive city that's surrounded by conservative areas, but environmentalism is an across the board issue because it's a coastal tourism, beach, wetland, intercoastal waterway area. So the environment's right in everybody's face. I'm from West Virginia. Everybody talks about it being a red state now. It was cobalt blue for a hundred years, but because, you know, we, we all understood what coal mining and lumber and things like that done, we just see the environment and climate a little bit differently. I think that's part of this conversation we don't have enough of before we get to the policy is like, look, the city folks and let's call it elite, although I'm sick of that term because it doesn't really mean anything. I'm like, sure, the city folks and the academics and the politicians, they talk over everybody's heads some. You really need to tailor this to what part of the areas you're talking to, because you can get some common ground if you tailor this conversation to where people are living at right now today. Right. Absolutely. And that's one of the, the reasons that, you know, when it comes to energy policies, really when it comes to most policies across the board, we don't need top-down federal government mandates. What we need are our local solutions. You hit, hit the nail on the head. I come from a Midwest farming family. Um, you know, we we recognize the the need to conserve our land, to be protectors of our land. Um, we don't have to to change the conversation too much, but we go and we talk about, um, you know, our friends down in Florida who are, are still suffering from the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. They see, uh, you know, changes to, to ocean levels. They see changes to weather patterns. Um, and, and so when we have those different experiences, what can happen is we can take Governor DeSantis from Florida and take some of his climate resiliency policies that he's working on at the state level and marry those with the clean energy innovative solutions that Governor Holcomb from Indiana are working on. And all of a sudden, out of that, we have 
a, a solution-based platform that is, is again, driven in those experiences that you were talking about um, and not just, you know, scientific journals from uh, the academic elites, if you will. Yeah, College of um, the Villainous. See, I told you I'd mess it up. We practice it and everything. <laughs> College of the Villainous joining us. Um, let's talk about some of those top-down folks, though. Of course, President Biden is the president, so we're going to get more environmental stuff. We know what he said during the buildup. He, of course, he made John Kerry the climate czar, which let's just be blunt. If you if you could pick a worse caricature for that job that isn't going to reach out and, you know, gain hearts and minds, that that was probably not the best pick for that. However, uh, government does have a role here. We understand what unfettered industry does. We understand that there needs to be environmental protections on the federal level. Where's the breakdown, though? Give me a ratio. Give me a line. I know it's going to be a little subjective, though. Where's good government stepping in? Like, you know, we don't want to just, you know, strip forest and you know, I'm from the land of strip mining. It's an, sure. it's an ugly scar on the ground. You know, nobody's disputing that. But there also needs to be a balance here. And of course, when it's the federal government, you know, everything's a nail and all they got is a hammer. That kind of applies. Give us a good ratio, though, where good government starts and stops and where practical policies start and stops and where folks being able to live and companies being able to function start and stops. Or for me, as, as a conservative, the line for all of that is crossed at the moment government regulation, the moment government mandates starts prohibiting innovation and starts prohibiting the free market. I think a great example of that is uh, last year, my organization, the Conservative Energy Network, sponsored a, a tour of the critical mineral mine, uh, Rio Tinto, the Kennecott mine out in Salt Lake City. We had state legislators from around the country who are on this tour with us. And as we're touring this mine, we're seeing those critical minerals that are uh, so important, not only to the energy industry, but really to every industry, to everything that we touch in our daily lives, the computers that we're talking through to our cell phones uh, across the board. And at the end of the tour, one of the government affairs people from Rio Tinto tells the legislators that they're wanting to expand this mining project. And they've been good stewards of the land in, in Utah. Um, and, and they've been in the community for over a hundred years, but to, for them to expand that project, it is going to cost them twice as much and take twice as long as it would be for them to invest in a similar project in Australia or Canada. Now make all the jokes you want about Canada, but it's not a third world country. So if you're the CEO of Rio Tinto, a large multinational enterprise, Andrew, where are you going to invest your money? Is it going to be in the project that takes twice as long and twice as much to start to see a return on your investment or a place where you can do that in, in half the time and with half the cost? And, and for us, that's, a, I think, a perfect illustration of the lens that to, all right, the government, the government should put reasonable regulations to ensure that we're not destroying the environment, to ensure the safety of everyone. But the moment that those become so onerous that they're preventing future development, uh, that's made here in America, that's where it starts to become a real issue. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out 
her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Tyler Davila is joining us. Here's here's exactly where our more progressive friends kind of paint themselves in the corner. And I think, frankly, the president's stuck in this box right now. They want the green energy revolution. They want battery-powered, electric-powered, everything, which I think we will get there someday. We are not there yet. And yet, on the other hand, you just touched on it, but we don't want to have this conversation. Those rare earth minerals have to be mined out of the ground. They are mostly controlled, especially things like cobalt and lithium, things like this, by untowards foreign powers that we don't really want to be doing business with, number one. But if we got to do business with them, we sure don't want to be beholden to them. We know the problem with fossil fuels. We know the entanglements with oil overseas when we don't produce enough for ourselves. There has to be a grown folk discussion in here. It's like, yes, we want green energy. Yes, we want a better environment. But you're still going to have to have some trade-offs to get that future. You're trading one problem for a new set of problems. And I don't think we do enough good enough job of being realistic with you're going to have some of the same problems. They're just going to have different names and different things. And then you paint yourself into a corner of this mythical, we're going to have this great thing. But, oh, God, the oil prices are going through the sky, which is what we have now. And everybody's in a bind all of a sudden. Why can't we just be honest and have that conversation? Because all the data is there. It's two Google searches to see where cobalt's mined at or lithium's mined at. It takes, you know, Time Magazine, rolling like big name, not conservative outlets have run exposés on what this mining and some of the human rights issues and some of the environmental issues with some of this type of mining overseas. Why in the world wouldn't we want to take control of it with our eyes toward our environmental regulation, with our strong EPA production? You think we'd want to be the world leaders in this, but we don't even want to discuss it. Absolutely. And we talk about, you know, President Trump, when he was in office, worked to even up the trade imbalance that, that so many past American presidents had put us into. And in critical minerals, when we think about that, we rely almost solely on the Chinese government, who right now, you know, we talk about geopolitical um, importance, not exactly our friend, not ever our friend. Um, but when we look at, at things, when we make things here in America, it is inherently more clean and more efficient than what any other country in the world can do. And an, an example, Andrew, that I, I like to, to go back on is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which cuts from Russia to Germany. And I should say cut because it's in past tense now, um, obviously with everything going on between Russia and the Ukraine, that pipeline was never turned on. In fact, Russia right now is sabotaging Nord Stream 1 and leaking oil into the Baltic Sea, which is a whole other conversation for a whole other day. But Nord Stream 2, which received the endorsement of the Biden administration, that's the only reason it, it, it was finished, is nearly three times dirtier than the Keystone Pipeline would have been here at home. So if we're talking about what's going to be best for the environment, if we talk about what's going to be best in terms of reducing carbon, 
it's made in America. It's American natural gas. It's American mining of critical minerals. It's American nuclear. It's American solar. It's American hydro. We're an all of the above organization. America needs to be leading the energy world because when we do it, not only positions us more strongly on a geopolitical scale, but it it takes our reliance on foreign countries and flips that on its head. Then instead of us having to rely on Saudi Arabia for oil or on China for critical minerals or Colombia or any other country, now we can be the ones that are exporting not only energy, but the energy supply chain to the rest of the world. Yeah, Tyler Devane is joining us. You do something interesting here because I think this is one of those topics that really could get heterodox if people would just take it honestly and in good faith. It could cross through a lot of stuff. You highlight a couple of governors here and, you know, people are going to recognize the names. But before you say the names, I can look at this just as somebody follow. I'm like, OK, I've got a very conservative, you know, a governor that's being compared as kind of the next thing after Trump, if not a rival to Trump. I've got a governor who's very moderate as far as Republican governors go. I've got an Alaska governor, which is always kind of a unique thing. They always have kind of a libertarian conservative bent, but they're actually more moderate than some of the lower 48s. This is a wide swath of Republican leadership here, and they all kind of found the way to say the same things when it comes to this new energy stuff. Do you see a change coming in that way that it's cutting across some of these lines? Because if I just came out and said, well, Ron DeSantis did this, everybody starts thinking the culture war stuff, but he kind of fallen in line with these other governors on the same thing. Should we be addressing it that way, do you think? I do. And if you notice, uh, you know, the, the governors you mentioned, and I'll, I'll quickly run through the list, Governor DeSantis in Florida, working on, on hardening infrastructure in the state of Florida uh, to combat some of the effects of, of a changing climate, to work on that climate resiliency aspect. Governor Holcomb in Indiana, the Indiana legislature, which is a super majority um, Republican, they passed nearly a dozen clean energy bills. They touched on everything from electric vehicles to solar to nuclear. They're basically saying, and again, super majority in Indiana, they're basically saying, hey, if this is where uh, the economy is going. If it's where the free market is moving towards, we want to be a part of it. And then you have Alaska, Governor Mike Dunleavy, and um, you know Alaska has real problems with energy reliability, with energy sourcing in general. Um, but what they're wanting to do is to prioritize their energy reliability, to prioritize their energy independence, um, and they're going to lead through clean and renewable energy technologies in order to achieve that. And, and so I think what you see is each of these governors, and all three of them are Republicans, um, they kind of encapsulate something that even just hit the news just last week. And that was Governor Youngkin in Virginia. Of course, we all know Glenn Youngkin sort of beginning the, uh, the conservative revolution that we should hopefully be seeing at the ballot box here in a few weeks. Uh, but he released a state energy plan that prioritizes an all of the above approach. And for too long, we've let all of the above fall into that political rhetoric that we talked about at the top of the conversation here. But all of the above means just that. It means that we prioritize um, uh, forms of energy, including natural gas, that are going to ensure reliability, that we look at existing technologies like wind and solar and hydro, but that we also innovate and we move that free market uh, to a, a more efficient path. And, and if we're being honest, that's small modular nuclear. Um, and so I, I think what we're seeing here is governors responding to the needs of the day, to the needs of their state. Um, and they're doing that in a way that that isn't going to rely on artificial mandates and subsidies and, and 
deadlines, uh, but in a way that it's going to be able to be supported by the free market, not just in this moment, but for years to come. Yeah, Tyler DeVos joining us. When you look at something like Alaska, which is, of course, resource rich, we all know about you know the North Slope and the resources of Alaska. They're pushing for renewable energy. Places like West Virginia, traditional coal country, they're starting to really push renewable energy. A lot of battery-powered um, companies moving into that area. When you see th- Youngstown, Ohio, the old GM plant is now an electric vehicle factory. Mm-hmm. I still have questions about the economic viability of this because a lot of that's still working off subsidies. But you can't deny it's moving that way. Give me a time frame, though, for somebody that's a, that's healthily skeptical. I'm not just talking about the cranks. I'm talking about people like me who's just like, I think we'll get there, but I still think we're a ways away. 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? What are we talking here, do you think? I think we're looking in that, that t- 10 to 20 years. But the key here is that we don't give ourselves a hard and fast deadline, um, that we allow the clean energy transition to be just that, a transition. You know, one of uh, my favorite kind of side-by-side pictures that I've seen is a a picture of Times Square in 1901. And it was, or early 1900s, I should say. And there are are horse and buggies everywhere. And there's one car in Times Square. You fast forward, Times Square, same vantage point, 1920. There are cars everywhere. There's one or two horse and buggies across Times Square in New York City. And when you you think about that, I, I think that's kind of how we're getting here um, with energy. Will we be employing more and more renewable and clean energy in the future? I believe so. I think that battery technology has a way to go before it can capture all of those. Because sometimes, let's be honest, the wind doesn't sh- the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, and we need batteries to to capture the excess energy that's produced during those times. Uh, but I also think that is we look at, you know, when subsidies sunset, um, that's going to be a big indicator to are, is this industry able to survive on its own? And and I do think that it will. There are a lot of studies out that uh, show that it can be competitive without subsidies and, and let's let the free market dictate where we need to go in the future. Yeah. Tyler Duvillia is joining us. Uh, the piece is in real clear energy. We're going to link to, like we always say, Read the whole piece, decide for yourself. He's got a lot of links in here, too, that you need to click through and read the background. It's well-researched. Lots of stuff to go through. Tyler, let folks know where they can follow you until we get you back on Hertel and hear from you next time, my friend. Thanks, Andrew. You can uh, follow me on my personal account at Tyler Davilius. That's D-U-V-E-L-I-U-S. Um, and my, I have to plug my company's social media as well. It's at Cons, C-O-N-S, Energy Net. Um, on Twitter and look forward to, to being able to engage with you all on online. Yeah, do that. We'll put all those links in there. Uh, it's a topic that's just going to be something we talk about over and over again. So we'll definitely have you back talk about some more. Appreciate your time, Tyler. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much, Andrew. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. 
Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Hertel. Let's end on a good note. Let's go to one of the great cities in america if not the world i love it down there charleston south carolina daniel island to be specific daniel island news the charleston basket brigade um that's baskets is in the stuff you carry with for those of you from logan a local charleston nonprofit founded on daniel island is celebrating its 15th year and will return to a live in-person event for the first time since 2019 on tuesday November the 22nd, the charity has set a goal to raise 120000 to feed 3,500 Charleston Tri-County families, which would come out to about 21,000 people on Thanksgiving. The CBB assembly and delivery effort will take place at the Charleston Area Convention Center, Exhibit Hall C, on Tuesday, November the 22nd, approximately about 7 a.m. and go as long as it is needed. This was founded way back in 2008 by close friends and working moms Pat Hartley and Michelle Scarafile. What started as a small effort, feeding 75 families in its first year, grew to serve 3,500 plus with the help of Carolina One Real Estate, Low Country Grocers, Piggly Wiggly. Anytime we get a Piggly Wiggly reference in, we're all for it. They are not a paid sponsor of the program, however. We're available. DMs are open. Communities in South Carolina and Monumental Marketing, since its inception, the Basket Brigade has raised more than $1.3 million and fed 40,000 families in need. Due to COVID concerns, they didn't do it in 2020 and 2021, so they opted to provide turkey vouchers from Piggly Wiggly for recipient families. The charity also supports families in need throughout 2020 with ongoing grants. Um, This has been a true labor of love, they said. Hundreds of Charleston area residents, businesses, schools, churches, and organizations donate their time. Uh, They said basically how this works is it costs about $30 to feed a family of six, and every penny raised is utilized directly for the purchase of food. Each family receives a box of food to contain an entire Thanksgiving meal, including a 10 to 12 pound frozen turkey, cranberry sauce, stuffing, mashed potatoes, corn, green beans, sweet potatoes. It is the South after all, so they do come with marshmallows, uh, fresh rolls, and a pumpkin pie. You know, if it was American, they do apple, but who's the quiver? It is for charity. Inside the box is an anonymous letter that reads, quote, this comes to you from someone who cares about you. Although we ask that you take care of yourself well enough to be able to do this for someone else one day. Uh, if you're interested in this program, again, this won't be going on until right before Thanksgiving. It's a 501c3, so tax deductible, charlestonbasketbrigade.org. We will link to it uh, if you can participate or feel like giving. By the way, uh, as we wrap up her tell for today, if you get a story you want in our good uh, in our good news segment that we try to close with, you got another story you want us to cover. We've done whole segments and whole shows based off what y'all want to cover, talk about, or think maybe isn't getting the coverage it deserves. Let us know at hertelshow gmail.com, hertelshow on the Twitter. Love to hear from you. Of course, Four for the Fire, my Twitter account. You're welcome to reach out to me there. Mine and our guests' Twitter handles are on the lower third graphics if you're watching on the YouTube or the Big Talker Radio Partners Facebook Live feed. That'll do it for Hertel. We always appreciate you wherever you are across the street or around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll talk to you again real soon with more Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. So long.